2: Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host Adam Schick. Don't look now, but the calendar just turned to March, which means for the first time in over 700 days, we are counting down to the return of the NCAA tournament one year after COVID yanked it away at the last minute. And while the Gators are almost certain to be dancing, seeds are still up for grabs, which is why these last few games start to carry additional pressure. On today's show, We'll bring FloridaGators.com senior writers Chris Harry and Scott Carter together to discuss the final stretch for Mike White's team, the emergence of Trey Mann, the buzz at the halfway point of spring football, the fan-friendliness of the new Florida ballpark, a blistering run for gymnastics, and wishful thinking rule changes in the PAT. Then, we'll catch up with recent Gator great Kavarius Hayes to reflect on his memories at UF, the challenges of international travel, and his hopeful path to the NBA. But first, lots of athletes have potential when they get to campus, but not everyone's able to live up to the expectations. A local product and a McDonald's All-American, Trey Mann has been a good player over his first season and a half for the Orange and Blue, but in the last few weeks, he's morphed into a great player and the clear go-to guy on the floor. So to open our roundtable, we asked Chris to take us behind the
0: transformation. We saw this uh, last year, and I'm sure somewhere in the podcasts in the archives, there's been sound of me discussing uh, last year when Trey Mann arrived on campus. I, I I thought he's the most talented offensive player Florida had. Um, you saw his uh, his buffet of, of of moves and array of things he could do in terms of getting his own shot off, and you know this is a um, this is a program that. You know, hasn't had a lot of guys that can go get their own shot. I think Kayvon Allen could, but he wouldn't too often. I <laughs> right. thought I thought Jalen Hudson could go get his shot at times, but a lot of times you didn't want him to go get his shot at a certain time. I think, you know, Scotty Wolbekin obviously could and Brad Beal could. Uh, obviously, Brad Beal's gotten a lot better at it. But Trey Mann had that, um, had that when he arrived. And for whatever reason, early on in the season, you didn't see it, um, but – uh, he, he suffered a concussion at UConn in the fourth game of the season, which I think set him back, certainly confidence wise. But uh, when he came back this year, uh, you know, I think a lot of people were, certainly I was, I was figuring that he was going to be one of these guys that COVID really hurt because, you know, he couldn't be here. He couldn't be working out in the gym. He couldn't be around his coaches and stuff. And and, and he was doing a lot more of that late last season and, and started to uh you know, play a little bit better late last season, but, uh, the Trey man that's been on display the last, uh, the last couple of weeks, he's been fabulous. I mean, even in a loss to Missouri Wednesday night, I mean, he was, he was nine for 11 from the floor. Uh, he only took one three. I wish you'd take him more cause he's been really good from three point range, but, um, you know, sec player of the week and he was, he's a finisher. Um, again, you know, you can be guarding him. He, he can hit you with a step back he can drive down the lane and kiss it off the glass, uh, you know, in the, in the Missouri game against some older defenders, uh, you know, Missouri's a really old and experienced team. Um, he was making some nice feathery floaters in the lane and it, it, and Mike White says it. they want more of it. You know, he finished with 21 points in that game. They, you know, they lose by two. He he was nine of 11 from the floor. He probably should probably should have shot more. So there's something about being unselfish, but, um, Maybe he needs to be a little bit more selfish. Uh, uh, maybe he needs to, or I guess the better word is, is to be more aggressive. Now he's he's vowed to be aggressive. I mean, you t- you look at his you look at his last three games: uh, twenty-one points, nineteen points, twenty-one points. He had thirteen rebounds uh, in the in, in the win at Auburn last week. Uh, he had uh, eight rebounds, I think, in the in the win at Kentucky. He's the best player on the team right now, and you know, frankly, we may this may have been his last. Uh, this may be his last home game. You know he stuck around in that uh in that NBA underclassman pool for until the last minute, and uh, I would foresee him doing that again. But you know that remains to be seen. We still got a few more games out of out of Trey Man coming up, and uh, he's playing like the McDonald's All American that he was advertised to be. Now it took him a while, but he's definitely doing good for him.
2: Let's talk about where the Gators are. You know, as we sit here and talk today, and, and you know it's interesting, Chris, because we see flashes in Florida obviously went on the road. They beat Kentucky, who was playing very well at the time, but then they come home and they have obviously a a turnover fest against Missouri who wasn't playing well and they lose a tough home game. It's a weird trend where they, they seem to do better against good teams. And when they play struggling teams, they seem to play down to them a bit. So I guess you know, you're, you're at this stage of the year. There's one game left. You are what you are. But how do you assess where Florida is
0: as we essentially you know, crest in, into the postseason? First of all, M- Missouri's a good team. They had that. You're right. I think they'd lost five of six. And two of those games where Jeremiah Tillman had left the team to, because of a death in the family. And he's their you know, 6'11, 260 pound post guy who had a pretty good game against Florida before fouling out uh he was he was he was definitely a factor. They're also the second oldest team in power uh power conference basketball this season. Oh wow. Yeah. Um when you when only Georgia Tech uh has more experience uh so they're a good team. I mean, they beat Oregon this year. They beat Illinois this season, which absolutely smashed Michigan in Ann Arbor just the other night. Uh they beat they gave handed Alabama their first loss of the season. They beat Arkansas on the road. This is a very capable team. That maybe you can say has had some uh, inconsistencies like the Gators have had, mm-hmm. but uh, unfortunately for Florida, you know Florida brings a three-game uh, winning streak into that game Wednesday night, and you know it's 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 a lot. It's the fir- it's their first home game of March, kind of like their first home game in February. They came home, you know, had one four in a row and lost to South Carolina, a game they never should have lost, and to come out, they led that game Wednesday night seven nothing. Missouri takes timeout, Boom! They score the next uh, the next eight points, and now it's of a sudden you're in a game. But Florida, you met you referenced it, Adam. Fifteen turnovers in the first half. Yeah. I mean, they they came into the game having played 19 games, and in 11 of them they didn't even get 15 turnovers. They have 15 of them in the first half, leads to 18 points, and now you know you, you you're giving them confidence. And you know, you give Florida credit for you know cutting those turnovers down to three in the second half. But you've already dug yourself a hole, and you spend the entire second half trying to get out of it, and you can't come up with the stop that you need to at the most pivotal time, and you lose a game, you shoot 64% in the second half and 54% for the game. Wow. It's kind of, kind of weird, but, I mean, you, 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 know, you get what you pay for when you turn the ball over 18 times. I said last week um, Florida beat Georgia with 20 turnovers, which is like throwing four interceptions and winning a game. It doesn't happen very often. Yeah. When you have 15 turnovers in the first half of a game, you put yourself in peril and you're probably not going to win, and, and, and it caught up with them this game. As far as where they stand, um, uh, you know, Florida will go to ten, uh, go to Tennessee in the in the COVID-added game for Sunday, and the winner of that game will get a double bye and be the fourth seed in the in the tournament. Um, if Florida loses the game, depending on what happens around the league, they could drop from anywhere to fifth or sixth, I think so. That's a tough one to swallow. You know, you want to be one of those four teams that gets the double bye, but you know, they played their way out of out of that position. They still control it. Go to Tennessee and win. It's a team they beat by twenty six points earlier in the season, but. Something tells me it's not going to be that kind of game up in Knoxville, and the Tennessee folks will be, uh, be remembering that. In the bigger picture, you know, they're still an NCAA tournament team, still uh, safely in that field. Um, but a lot can change, obviously, this time of year, especially if you start putting yourself in the predicament when you're in the at-large situation. I don't think Florida's there right now. They're probably an eight seed right now. Uh, but when you start getting in the – when you start becoming one of those last at-large teams – Maybe if you close out with three losses, you put yourself in a, in a situation you don't want to be in because teams start stealing bids at the end of the year by winning conference tournaments that they're not supposed to win. So it's a strange year, but uh, I think it'll end with the Gators in the NCAA tournament. They, sh- they could certainly help themselves by finishing regular season off with a win at Tennessee and also, of course, uh, maybe making a, at least a mini run of some kind um, in Nashville next week.
2: You know, while basketball is getting down to some of the the most meaningful moments of their season, we're still in the we're in the early season with football. Still springtime. Uh, we talked last week, Scott, about some of the storylines heading in. Um, where do we stand now? You know, we've gotten a few weeks in here. Lots of IGTV for Dan Mullen. What are you seeing, and, and what are some of the the key talking points you're finding out?
3: Well, uh, they're kind of in the middle of that camp. Uh, that means the first scrimmage is coming up. So. Without question, they're going to get a better look at a lot of the young guys. That's kind of the focus right now with the coaches and, you know, as the, and the players. Uh, you know, once you're out there for a couple of weeks like they've been, even though it's not every day like during the season, they've got enough practices in now to where, you know, I'm sure they want to test themselves in more of a, a game-type atmosphere, which the scrimmage does. Gives the coaches, uh, I think, some better uh, tape. Uh, to work off of in their evaluations and just really with a team this young and experienced, Adam, I mean, to test guys out in different spots. I mean, there's some cross training, I think, especially on defense, which is kind of MO for, for Todd Grantham. But I think with everything that's going into this year, I mean, Grantham spoke uh, last week for the first time since uh, the bowl game and he didn't want to rehash 2020. He knows that, they didn't play up to their their uh, ability, and he, he feels good that they're going to improve a lot this year uh, with the extra time to develop in spring and getting this time back, which they missed last year. But also, uh, you know, there's there's some guys on the on the roster who have, they don't really know what they can do. Uh, you know, even though they come in like uh, we've talked about, Jason Marshall Jr. the the defensive back. I mean, now you get to see him. In a kind of a, a situation of a, in like a game, so uh, he gets tested in a different way. How's he fit in back there? Is uh, does he right? Does he play right away? Start right away? Not going to be answered obviously in the spring, but it gives a, a little idea uh, of some of these young players and and how they fit into the big picture. And I really, I think you're going to hear similar stories about spring football at different schools around the country, Adam. Mm-hmm. You know these coaches. They love the development time. Uh, they love when they can really work with these guys like they can in the spring. And, and it's been two years since uh, most most uh, coaches around the country have done that. So I just get the feeling that it's almost like a, a re- reintroducing yourself to this period, this, this uh, time of year. And I think that's a lot of the mentality out there. But they know there's an urgent tone out there, too, because – I think they like this team. Uh, I think that they they think that this team could be good next year, uh, even though they've lost some big pieces. I, I know they the roster is talented, and and I, I think it's a program that's still going to be talked about entering the year, uh, competing with Georgia and the SEC East, and maybe more.
2: You know, when when we do get around to the fall, uh, and a lot of people are now looking at that because you've had some schools, namely Alabama, come out and say. We're expecting 100% capacity in the fall, which, again, I think everyone is hoping for that. Everyone will say that. As we've learned in the last year, everything is subject to change. But even Scott Strickland weighed in and said, while well, not going quite as far as that, um, that there's reasons for optimism that the fall can be a traditional year in the swamp. But again, we still don't know. We're hopeful, but we don't know.
3: Yeah, ultimately, it's going to be decided by the medical community and we're and, and you know that's that's going to be different perhaps in Gainesville Florida than it is in Tuscaloosa Alabama mm-hmm. or certainly Los Angeles i mean but you're seeing around the country you're seeing the numbers if you if you keep up with the covid numbers daily like a lot of us have in the last year we're probably at the best point we've been in for a long time and now everybody's hoping that you know this is the trend that's going to last. Uh, and if it does, then you feel really good come fall that maybe you can have full capacity crowds. And and Greg Byrne, the athletic director at Alabama, did come out publicly this week and say that is the plan for Alabama in the fall. And uh, Scott Strickland did weigh in. Uh, I think his 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 comment was something like, "I think that's the plan at a lot of schools around the country." Right. And and well. But he went back to the, the medical community. What they're going to probably they're going to have final word in this. And but let's just hope for everyone's sake that whatever it is in twenty twenty one, it resembles, I guess, what more like what we're used to. And hey, I'm I hope Alabama can have full capacity in the fall. And I I certainly hope Florida can too, uh, because I you know it's just it's just different. We all know that it's been nice to have sports uh, to have this distraction. Uh, during this past year but at the same time what we're dealing with now what we're experiencing let's let's face it's it's like eating chocolate cake Adam but like with some kind of false ingredient instead of real sugar (laughs) (laughs) I want the real thing man
2: (laughs) It's, it's yeah it's no sugar added cookies that's not no one wants that
3: yeah it's different it's different
2: yeah um in terms of full capacity uh, we'd love for there to be full capacity at baseball right now, so uh, more fans can check out the new Florida ballpark. Uh, I know you've had a chance to get out now and see it from from multiple angles, Scott. You've kind of cased the place uh, from a a viewer perspective. Uh, tell us about your your trials and tribulations at the park, and also Florida getting back on track against Sanford last weekend.
3: Yeah, you know, I'm going to start with the ballpark, and I mean the, our listeners, a lot of them obviously haven't been there yet. Hopefully, they can get there soon. And this is coming from a guy who I've been to pretty much all the major league parks in existence, except a couple of them for my years covering baseball. I haven't been to a couple of the new ones like in Miami or Atlanta. I've been to a lot of minor league parks and
2: I've been to Miami and Atlanta. So between the two of us, we <laughs> may have it covered. We got to right? cover.
3: Yeah, yeah. Go figure
2: the two that
3: <laughs> I live closest to other than Tampa Bay. I haven't been to. So don't ask me how that happened, but, yeah. um, I'm So, you know, and, and baseball, is, I, as we talked probably on this show, I mean, it's kind of the sport that I enjoy the most in terms of just being in the park, you know, because mm-hmm. it's it's more of a – I mean, watching baseball, it's like, hey, the game's important, but not to everybody there. I mean, some people are keeping score. Some people are into every pitch. I'm one of those that, you know, I really pay attention at crunch time, uh, but I also like to just take in the ambience, you know, Mm -hmm. So I've walked around Florida Ballpark a couple of times, and it stacks up really well with the parks I've been to. Uh, I mean, I've told people, you know, you take any really good minor league park you can think of, and it it really holds up well. I love the 360 concourse. I mean, that's just a game changer for the fans. And I walked around a couple of times and just taking it in, you know, whether it's from behind home plate, down the left field line, go in the outfield berms, sit in the, the chairs in center field and just take in the game that way. and do the same thing on the right field side. So that is something the fans are going to really enjoy and appreciate. And you got a lot more room to kind of spread out there too. And just, you know, this behind center field, they call it the Disney Grove. And, you know, they've got a nice little – patch of uh, grass out there with some citrus trees and a a concession stand and it's just a place you could also hang out there for a couple innings if you're wanting to catch up with somebody else who's at the game and maybe take a break from watching the action so a lot of options Adam I think uh, I think as more and more Gators fans get a chance to come into the park they're really going to be impressed and what I hope it does long term is you know you're always going to have your your diehard baseball fans who want to, you know, who's, the game is number one as it should be. But I think this might just – it's just going to get some families and people out to a baseball game maybe on a weekend or a weeknight just for a, another entertaining option that this stadium offers that the other one didn't because of that fan uh, friendliness, I guess is mm-hmm. the best word to say. it When they were building this, I mean, Scott Strickland spoke about the fan experience a lot. And I'm going to say they hit a home run on the fan experience. And uh, I think, you know, I think you'll be impressed too, Adam I and mean, you're a hard guy to impress.
2: It's very true. It's very true. <laughs> uh, <laughs> to, I've seen a lot, Scott. I've seen a lot in my time. You, you um, have. As far as the product on the field, again, getting yes. back on track against Samford, um, it wasn't unexpected, but obviously after the first weekend losing two, three to Miami, the wins were nice.
3: Yeah. They've won five in a row. Now, uh, we got a midweek game this week, and then you got Florida A&M coming into Florida ballpark on the weekend. And there's a couple of notable things that could happen here. I mean, yeah, they, they got right after Miami. I mean, Miami's no slouch. We talked about them last week. It won't be a surprise if Florida and Miami are in the postseason. season, maybe meet up again later in the year. Uh, but Florida's pitching has cut down on those walks tremendously. And they're just smacking the daylights out of the ball. I mean, Judd Fabians, after a little slow start, uh, he really heated up last week. Jacob Young is uh, playing excellent in left field. Uh, run his hitting streak, I think, up to knocking at the door of the school record.
2: What's well, a wraparound streak, too? Right? Isn't it from 2019? <laughs> it's a three-year streak now.
3: It's a very straight streak. The last couple of games of 2019, and then of course, all 17 games last year. And now what? Uh, eight or so this year.
2: It's like it's like rollover minutes on your cell phone yeah. plan. That used yeah, to be the, a thing.
3: They're having fun with the actual days count. I think it's like well over six hundred. So uh, it's just uh, so, you know Jacob Young. If you watched him play, uh, he's one of those guys that he doesn't blow you away with just the tool set, as we like to say in baseball. Adam kind of skill set mm-hmm. uh, that a guy like Judd Fabian has, or a guy like Mike Zanino had when he was here, but he is just a baseball player. It's uh, That's how, you know, you hear scouts and coaches talk. I mean, he does all the little things. He's a hustler. He's smart, has a, has a big IQ. So it's fun to see him, but more notable perhaps in program history, uh, Kevin O'Sullivan now has 553 career wins. He needs three to tie and four uh, to break Dave Fuller's all-time school record of 5, what, 5.56 to equal. What's impressed me about, about Sully, he's not just a program builder. I mean, he's sustained it, which mm-hmm. we've seen in today's modern college sports landscape. A lot of coaches can build it, but sustaining it may even be a more impressive feat. And Sully's done that. I mean, they continually have the top recruiting classes, the top two or three in the country. Uh, they've got the deepest pitching staff in the country. So um, anyway, that's just something that Gators fans keep an eye on this weekend. You're going to have a a new all-time winning baseball coach at Florida pretty soon.
2: And at the rate they're going, gymnastics is going to break some all-time winning numbers as well. Uh, Talk about a team that entered the year with sky-high expectations uh, and have have been able to, to match those, which... Sometimes it seems like the bar is too high, I guess, for gymnastics, literally and figuratively. But in this case, they have just been on a roll all season long. Trinity Thomas with two tens and one meet. I mean, they're absolutely rolling at, at the right time of year.
3: Yeah, when you flash back to last spring, Adam, when the coronavirus pandemic really hit, the two teams that I thought paid the the biggest price, obviously, were the baseball team at the time, what, 16-1, and ranked number one, and the gymnastics team, which I thought was – it was getting ready to go into the postseason. It would not have surprised me at all if they'd won a national title last year. So that, that's hard to lose that and then kind of retool and come back and still still have that same focus and drive. But guess what? They haven't missed a beat. Uh, number one in the country, I think they are the favorite to win the national title if things go right for them. And, you know, they had their last home meet um, last weekend, beat Auburn. Uh, they're getting production really from everybody you know they've had some they they had a what the meet against Kentucky uh, a couple of weeks ago where they were shorthanded without Thomas and Nia Reed you had a lineup that's just stepped up and filled in I mean yeah people like Leah Clapper or Megan Skaggs obviously I mentioned Nia Reed behind Trinity Thomas on the floor is a dynamic performer and then Alyssa Baldwin I mean she, she stole the headlines uh, last week with her performance against Kentucky, came back and did the bars again against Auburn, had another stellar performance. So you just sense that this is a team kind of peaking really at the right time. And, you know, this is a sport that takes its toll on the body. So you always, uh, you always have to factor in a possible injury, but they seem like they're getting healthy. And if they stay healthy, Adam, there's a real – Possibility, maybe even a likelihood, that this this team can win the program's first national title since they won three in a row from uh, 2013 to 15, and uh, that would be a you know just a huge comeback story considering what they lost in 2020.
2: No question, and we'll continue monitoring their progress as they move toward the postseason. Uh, right now, I do want to pivot onto our PAT. Uh, I'm inspired this week by rule changes, and and the reason I thought of this initially was. I didn't even know about this at spring training where they basically as a way to protect pitchers who are having really bad days at spring training, they instituted a new rule that if you throw over 20 pitches in an inning, um, you can just shut the inning down. This happened against the Braves. I think their bases were loaded with one out. Guy threw over 20 pitches. It wasn't working for him. He just said, I'm done. And the inning ended and they moved on. Um, I don't endorse this rule for regular season games, but... The general inspiration is, you know, evolving the game. Baseball adopted some additional rules from the COVID season that they've kept. The seven inning double headers when necessary. Uh they're still gonna have the runners start on second in extra innings. Uh they have not gone to Universal DH as of yet, which is disappointing. Uh, Because I think most of us, especially Braves fans, are ready to see it. Uh, But it made me think about rules in sports and some rules that need to be fixed or changed that at the moment are not. So I open this up to your vast pit of wisdom.
0: What are some sports wrongs that need a rule to be righted? I do think. I mean, the, I can jump into the common argument, Adam, about uh, make the DH thing even. I can. I've actually thought maybe they should. Uh, they should add and it'd probably be like a globe trotter game. Maybe they stick a, a four point shot somewhere on the court where you can run to and be cra- crazy at the end of games. Maybe one of these upstart leagues could probably do it, or one of these uh, crazy uh, low major conferences could yeah. do that in in college basketball. Maybe a, a, a four points for a sixty yard field goal in football. But uh, one thing that I think it's just flat out unfair, okay, is the pass interference rule in football. Because if a defender is called for pass interference, it's assumed that the ball is caught, mm-hmm. and it could be a fifty-two yard penalty. Ball moves it, but if the offensive player shoves the guy fifty-two yards downfield, it's a 15 yard penalty yeah or a five yard penalty for whatever it is it's it's a, it's an automatic first down but the ball goes way back the other way you know if they're gonna assume Chuck, i had this conversation with tony dungy one time back when i covered uh the the buccaneers um if you're gonna assume in pass interference defensive pass interference that the guy was going to catch the ball why can't you assume that the defender was going to catch the ball on That's a very de- good on point. An offensive pass interference? Yeah. So, so uh, I, I think it should. There should be some. I don't know how you make it more severe, especially in a league that caters to offense so much when it comes to uh, rules and rule changes. But uh, I always thought that was a very astute point Tony Dungy made, and it doesn't surprise me coming from uh, somebody with a, a defensive mind like his uh, and someone who's uh, a fabulous uh, uh, ambassador for the game and was obviously a Hall of Fame coach. But yeah, why not? If you're going to assume. I'm, I'm I'm the offensive player and I'm going to catch the ball. Why can't you assume the defensive player is going to – it's something that the NFL – it's a question the NFL would, wouldn't bother answering. It's something that's not going to change. Can you imagine the uproar if you call offensive <laughs> pass? You just give the team the ball right there? But it, it is a point well taken, I thought. And like I said, an astute observation by a, a great, great coach. It'll be first in
2: 39 from <laughs> – <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Here well this
3: is something that's always bugged me about college football is that you know let's say there's a there's a fumble or a turnover or an interception whatever it is and the play the defensive player or even the offensive player in, in certain situations they catch the ball they stumble they hit the ground and nobody touches them but yet they're down I like the NFL rule where if you know if you jump on a fumble on the ground and nobody's around you, you can get up and run. Right. I, I hate. I, I've never liked the college rule where if you fall on the ball and your knee or elbow is down, that's that's the end of the play. I mean, I just think that's one of those rules that I've always wanted to see change. It's always bugged me, and I like that, you know, and even offensively, you could say, okay, you know, a guy I don't know, he's going down the field. Uh, the defensive back and him are running leg and leg, but he cuts inside, and makes a great diving catch he hits the ground but the defensive back is his momentum took him forward well in the NFL that guy could still get up and run as long right. as no one touches him whereas in college he's down so I've always wanted to see that rule change and I wouldn't mind seeing the one foot down reception change I think that rule's always bugged me a little bit too because you know it's just one of those rules where we're so used to seeing the NFL where you have to have two feet in and if these I don't know what differentiated those two rules years ago. Maybe it's like, okay, these guys in college aren't as good as the NFL. But I think with the coaching and everything now, why not go ahead and make it equal across the board so these receivers are better prepared for the next level. And also, it just if you can get both feet in, it, it takes more skill than one foot in. So that's just another one of those rules that I've always liked, the NFL version better than the college football version. But without question, if there's one rule – I could tweak tomorrow, Adam, and change. It would be, you know, a player could get up and advance the ball if he falls on the ground with the ball and no one touches him. I've always hated where they can't get up and advance if not touched.
2: We should have the same standard for college football that we do for two-hand touch, right? Someone's got to touch you to be down. Until you're touched, you should be able to continue going forward. Uh, And just to, to piggyback off what you said, the muffed punts. If you pick up a muffed punt, you should be allowed to advance the ball. Uh, um, yeah. So I these agree. Are, totally. These are common sense things that for some reason, the, uh, the college football gods have refused to change for us. So in the meantime, we encourage everybody to stay up on everything going on with the Gators by following these two guys here at FloridaGators.com, on Twitter, at Gators Scott, at Gators Chris. Again, big moments coming up for basketball. Chris will have that covered. And if you want to know what's going on on spring football and on baseball, Scott has you there. Uh, gentlemen, thank you so much. We'll talk to you next week. All right, thank you, Adam. Thank you, Adam. While Wednesday night's game against Missouri was the final home game of the year, there was no senior day to celebrate because, well, there are no seniors on the team. In fact, you'd have to go back two years to find the last time the Gators had a four-year player collect a frame jersey at half court. Kevarius Hayes was one of the guys in that group, and since leaving Gainesville, he's ventured overseas to build up a career he hopes will lead him to the NBA. We caught up with Special K, far from his hometown of Live Oak, as he's currently playing in France, and began by asking him to think back on the moment he became a Gator.
1: You know, being a Gator is probably like my earliest dreams of basketball. Um, I would say I probably got really serious about it going into high school. So then from then on, kind of gravitated, you know, so close to schools to me, Florida State, Florida. I really liked the way Florida played, you know, watching a lot of the greats to go through the school. Even my high school coach went to Florida himself. So talking with him about it, he let me know some of the good things about being there in Florida. And then the more I watch the way Billy Donovan just ran his system, I just fell in love with the game.
2: So it's funny, you mentioned Coach Donovan. You committed to Coach Donovan and then he left, but you stuck with your commitment and still wanted to be a Gator. So, can you talk about the decision to stay with that pledge and go in and, and ultimately play for Coach White and, and his staff?
1: Well, yeah, I feel like I always wanted to be um, a part of the Gators. Um, and so it was like pretty close to home, you know. So, if I did go there, I can always come back and see my family if I wanted to. They can even make an easy trip to come watch me play. So I felt like that was the best decision for me, especially coming in, having to meet, sit down with Coach White. We had like a really good understanding about what we were trying to do with Florida. And so it felt like we was on the same page. So from there, I agreed to stay.
2: You yeah, I feel like in a lot of cases that bond is built during recruiting and then you get on campus and you just continue that. What was it like establishing that relationship um, really once you got there and not having that background? What was it like growing with that staff and, and learning under them?
1: Um, I feel like, you know, at some some point we're like kind of figuring it out together, you know, um, I didn't really know them that very well, but as we day in and day out of practice, I kind of get to understand them a little more and like what we're trying to do. So I felt like from then on, they really had what's best interest in, you know, in uh, my future and everything. So I kind of learned to trust them more and more and, you know, we grew pretty close together.
2: What is it about the staff that, that you think is so effective? What are, what are their strengths that you got to experience in playing for them for, for four years? Uh, the encouragement, the commitment, um, being out there with us uh,
1: like nearly every day. And not only that, it's like in, allow individual time, open door policy. Anytime you want to talk to them, go right out to the office. You know, anybody in particular, whether it was Coach Nice, Mincy, even Coach White. And at the time, Coach May, when he was there, you know. I feel like a lot of a lot of them were pretty open about always being there for us, and not just on a basketball aspect, but in all um, parts of life.
2: You played a lot of games in your your four year career, but when you think back on it, which ones stand out? Is it is it games or is it more moments that you think about the most? I would say the moments.
1: You know, um, it's it's kind of hard because they all kind of blend together over the years. <laughs> but the the best moments is like the energy, the camaraderie of like the whole team understanding what it was like when I first got there having to go through the training camp process and struggling with my fellow freshmen at the time you kind of build up that bond and then throughout the years seeing them do good you know do great you know on the bench we're getting hype on the court everybody's (laughs) hype as I just just miss moments like that especially when it comes down to playing some of the biggest games and you just really enjoy it because you're out there with people you you know you trust and you know going to war with those guys is Probably memories you can't ever replace.
2: I imagine those those moments in the big games are probably from March Madness. Uh, what do you remember about playing in the big dance? Was it everything that you thought it would be? How did it compare to your expectations?
1: To be honest, I didn't have any expectations. It was I was already exceeding my expectations, <laughs> um, but just by getting there. So like by the time we were out playing in March Madness, it was it was uh, it was a lot, you know, at first because then um, I would say. Just like going to playing against some of our biggest competitions like uh, Kentucky and even like, Tennessee and all those. Uh, South Carolina was probably like one of our other biggest rivalries. And, you know, you playing against teams like that where you have to win. And it's just like, I don't know, I just like that competition level when I feel like most of the time all the guys are always there, always in tune.
2: When you're in the tournament, especially when you're winning, when you guys made the run to the Elite Eight, what's that like? And I'm sure that that camaraderie is on another level when you're on that journey and you keep going one step at a time, trying to climb all the way to uh, to the final four.
1: Yeah, that was, that was probably one of the best years we had together because that was a year where Florida was counted out. You know, they didn't even expect us to even make it past the first round. And we actually ended up making a huge run to the Elite Eight. And I felt like everybody was like together. We all had the same goal in mind. Everybody had worked hard.
2: And that's kind of one of the things where hard work finally does pay off. So you finished as the second best shot blocker in school history. When you think about some of the guys you even grew up watching, what does it mean to hold that mantle in the the Florida record books?
1: I mean, it, it was great. Like, like watching watching uh, like I said, I said the last the last two I passed up was like uh, Joe Kim and Al Horford. And I remember watching them. You know, when I first started, even getting an interest in Florida and you know just to think that now my name is up there compared to those guys like it was it was unbelievable another 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 level part of the reason why I even picked the number 13 was because of you know Joe Kim Noah and Mike Miller the attitude they
2: brought to the game I just wanted to you know be a part of that
1: and know um, finally get to make myself known as a Gator Great
2: and a lot of those blocks a lot of those memories made in front of the Rowdies uh, what do you remember about playing in front of the Rowdies? I don't know if you've had that experience anywhere else you've played to this point, but what stands out when you think about them?
1: Uh, the craziness, man. It was like, it was always loud in there. It was always hype. And one of the best parts about going to the gym, you know, we go out there, shoot around a little bit. is just to hear like all the banter they would give the other team and stuff like that. And you'd been on the court, you know, before they redid the old dome into the exact mm-hmm. tech arena. Um, it used to be like a lot closer, you know, you can like, you can feel the energy just like on your shoulders every time anything good or bad happens. It was always a outrageous roar. It was a crowd and it was honestly probably, the, you kind of get lost in
2: the moment. I've heard so many of your, your teammates, former teammates talk about uh, the things the Rowdies would do to get under guys' skin. W- what do you remember in terms of ones that really took it to the, the next level? Uh, There's been a couple, you know, where they,
1: you know, like they, they actually go to the lengths of, looking up some of these guys, even the uh, opposing star players and finding out things that, that happened or, like, <laughs> you know, things about them. And then they just, like, just yell it, shout it throughout the whole entire – warm up the whole entire game. I think the one that stands out the most is probably uh, – we played against – I think it was Auburn. And uh, it was uh, – one one of the Rowdies had made a, a dating account and they actually got oh, no. the guy. Yeah, like <laughs> – Talking about sneaking out after the game and stuff like that. And I was like, it was, it was crazy. I was like, that's about as far as I've ever seen anyone go <laughs> try to
2: throw somebody else off their game. So it was, it was something else. That's funny. Um, since, you, since you've left the program, how much have you been able to keep tabs on what they're doing? Are you able to watch a lot of the games? Are you following on Twitter? Like what, what's your level of connectivity with the Gators now that you're away?
1: Um, mostly it's just like you know, catching up on social media. I'll see like you know how well they're doing on Instagram. I'll check a couple, couple game results. I can't say I watch many games now, but um, I do try to keep track of like you know how well they're doing and stuff like that is going on, uh, mostly through, through Twitter, and Instagram. Mm-hmm.
2: How different does it feel? Because obviously you grew up as a fan, and then you go through the program, you come out on the other side. When you follow now and you see the results, like what is what is the feeling compared to before you went? To school, and then when you were a player yourself, I would say a,
1: a lot of a lot of nervousness. Because when I got there, I didn't want to just be like a footnote. You know, I kind of wanted to, to stand out a little bit. So I was always nervous about, you know, am I am I good enough? Am I going to be like, you know, uh, some something to be remembered? So I felt like every day I went in, I just like I tried to not make such a big deal out of it. Because I, I felt like at the at first it kind of like got to me, and then if I did really bad, I could get like down on myself but um you know finally going through the whole process and like being where i was and finally getting now it's like you know proud of myself like good like great achievement i feel like you know it was something that i felt like i set the bar a little high but then as it happened slowly over time you know i felt like i was right where i was meant to be and honestly i wouldn't change anything about going to florida
2: you obviously made a lot of great relationships during your time i'm curious which guys do you still keep in touch with the most today? How difficult is it to be on that level when you guys are all in in various places around the world?
1: I would say the most is uh, Keith and Kayvon. You know, I I talk with them all the time. Um, Sometimes we even get on the game play together. And (laughs) it's just like, it's crazy to think, man. It's like, um, I would say during those times, we spent so much time together going to practice train table at the games it was you, you never thought those moments would end and now we're literally stretched out across the world I'm over here in France and um I the think there's like there are a couple countries over but still it's like we're still spread out you know you got shields back at home right mm-hmm. there with D-Rob and Hudson I talked to them recently but it was like it's just weird to think you know we we each live our separate lives but it's still good you know that we stay connected.
2: You had a, a pretty full college experience, right? Full four years, got to play. When you mm-hmm. think about what happened outside of the game, though, just in terms of your overall experience at Florida, how much did being part of the Gator Nation shape you into who you are today? I feel like being a part of the
1: Gator Nation helped me become, like, I would say the best example would be, like, more of an active person and, like, community help, stuff like that. I remember, like when I was there in Florida, I did a lot of community service, helped out. And it was like a lot of things that I wouldn't say didn't quite understand, but then where really get involved in at first, as far as like, you know, helping the less fortunate kids or doing like the little, uh the team things we would do where you go and, you know, pack up some uh, school supplies for kids to go back to school and stuff like that. It was like little things like that to kind of, you know, humble yourself as a person realizing kind of like where we, were from where I started to where I am now, kind of like uh, moments like that. And I say it's uh, good to take time to reflect on things like that, understand that the position I'm in now, I'm very fortunate to be here. You know, can't take it for granted.
2: So we noted you didn't have to go far to get from home to Gainesville, just live oak down the road a little bit. Uh, You've gone much further to be where you are today. Uh, Can you tell (coughs) us about some of the stops that you've made on your, your European tours since you left Gainesville?
1: Well, yeah, last year, you know, I was in all over Italy, um, Planned for Cantu, um, went and see some pretty nice places of uh, Valencia. Um, didn't quite make it to Rome due to the circumstances, but I would say like Italy is something to behold. Um, like the mountainous areas from where I lived up in Cantu, Lake Como just up the road, and even Milan, the city itself was like honestly a beautiful place to be. And now this year I'm out in France, a lot of a lot more traveling than it was last year, but mm-hmm. it's just like it's great. You know, I feel like the people. Of Europe are pretty nice and kind, even though it may be tough to understand like all the languages. Um, Right? (laughs) Yeah, so good to find those people that kind of speak a little English, make it a little easier. But I'll say some of the best places I've been to was actually uh, Athens. Um, We went there two weeks ago. We just came from there, and you know, um, Greece is very beautiful. Saw some of the ruins nearby. It was it was a great place to be. I can't say too much about anywhere else besides, besides Spain. We went to went to Spain and um, it was it was pretty nice over there. It was actually a good temperature change because that's when it started to get cold over here. And, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I miss
2: that Florida weather, man. <laughs> it's, it's a lot better down there. That'll that'll hit you the most, right? Especially if you're yeah. used to it your whole life. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> In terms of the, the language barrier, I'm, I'm always interested to talk to guys who go overseas and, and have those kind of culture clashes in a number of ways. Um, what, what have been some of the standout moments where you're like, oh, man, I'm definitely I'm, I'm not home anymore. Um, I would say probably um, my first first week out
1: here. You know, I'm still trying to get my bearings. Um, I didn't quite go grocery shopping. So I was trying to order some food and the guy calls me and I'm like, I forget. That I'm like, in France, I go down and I try to talk to him. He starts speaking <laughs> French, like all fast. And I'm like, whoa, 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 slow down, slow down. <laughs> and I, I was like, trying my best, like, uh, butchered some French to him. But he was pretty great guy. He's like, oh, oh, you speak English? And I was like, yes, yes. Thank you. <laughs> so I, w- I would say, you know, um, that definitely hit me right there. Because um, not everyone is going to be able to speak English. And so I um, figured... I'm, I need to start learning myself a little bit of French.
2: Have you, have you picked any up? Do you have any, any languages you want to share with us today? Uh, I could probably understand it better than I could
1: speak it. I just know like uh, some basics, like, uh, like bonjour or, or bon, bon, uh, was it bon it was like good night. So like usually, you know, if I ever order some late night food, I'll try to be nice and be like bon nuit. And I know like, of course, mercy is thank you and mm-hmm. And like little, little stuff like that. But then when it comes to like actually speaking in sentences, I, I understand very, very few parts of
2: it. I mean, it's, it's a process. So I figure yeah. I, I'll probably get it down by, by June. In terms of the game itself, how is the game different? How have you had to evolve as a player to match what the game is like over there professionally? A lot more focus driven.
1: You know, you got to uh, think a little more um, about you know, um, what, you're, what you're going to do and what you plan to do if something else happens. Because uh, I would say a lot of these people out here, a lot of these teams, the players are very talented, um, move just as quick and also can do some incredible things. So you got to always go on your A game. And, like, even though some things may not go the way you wanted to, it's important to have that mental focus to always stay on track and get back to what the game plan is and just stay level-headed thought at all. Cause I'll say a lot of times um, energy can energy and effort get you so far, but has to be channeled in the right direction. So having that focus is also like, I feel like what's helped me make it to the the next step in my game.
2: Well, I know you're you're playing in a, a really top league over there. I'm curious, what do your NBA prospects look like? How does that, how do you sort of start looking toward that and, and making the jump to coming home?
1: It's just it's just uh trusting in the process, understanding that. You know, I'm still a young player. I still have like a lot of a lot of things to learn, and the being that um, I made it to the Euro League now is a good sign. So, following the same code I've always had, just like you know, keep working hard and keep moving forward. Then, um, you know, if not next year, then like in in two years, you know, have my uh, chance to have the opportunity to make it back home. And so that's that's all it's really for. Just um, just to keep playing the game I love.
2: Final question is this has always been a good one with guys that have been overseas. We talked about some of the weird experiences you've had and maybe some culture clash. Have there what's the strangest food that you've eaten or the strangest food you've had a chance to eat that you said I'm not not doing that. <laughs> well, um I would say there was one there's like
1: this snail cuisine type thing. Mm. I don't I don't really know. Some escargot. Yeah, yeah, not not for me. <laughs> not for you. But, uh, yeah between that and um, they do tacos a little different. They put like french fries in their tacos. Don't quite get it, but it's <laughs> hey it's, it's the way they like to do things out here, so I just I just let it be you know stick to what I know.
2: Thank you so much, Kavari. It's good to talk to you again. Yeah, um, appreciate you man. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Stay up to date on everything going on with the orange and blue at floridagators.com, and we'll be back next Thursday with an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick. Please stay safe and go Gators!